You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with NRM Streamcast, and we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktorah.gmail.com, and of course, I will answer as many as I can. So many things to talk about, so much this week's Torah portion. Um, it's just packed. It's one of my favorite, Baloscha, happens to me, my Bar Mitzvah Parsha. Um, so there's lots of stuff, lots of things to discuss. And, I, you know, I, I'm going to go in a little different direction this week, especially if you haven't checked out our last show. We had Danny Aviva, if I'm pronouncing it right. Um, he did tell me, an Ethiopian Jew, he, he walked, basically, um, from Ethiopia through the Sudan all the way to Jerusalem. It wasn't exactly what he was looking for. Um, and we talked about his culture and the difficulties in, in giving over that culture to your children when your children in a new country. It's a really fascinating person, a fascinating book. Uh, but we're going to continue some of that, uh, some of those thoughts that I discussed with Danny um, as we move along. Um, but first, let's, we're going to pick one little point in the Torah portion to start, then we're going to see where it takes us. So, um, this week's Torah portion... Uh, the Jewish people have run out of food. They left Egypt. Um, it's 30 days out of the country, and whatever they brought with them is gone. So, of course, the Jewish people in the desert are very good at complaining, and uh, I can't remember if we talked about it a few weeks ago or I talked about it with my class or both. I said there's two ways to react, right, when you have a problem. You can complain... Or you can ask for help. And it's really the same thing. It's almost like the attitude. It's your tone of voice. You can go to Moses, scream and yell, rant and rave and say, uh, we're starving, we're going to die. It's your fault, which means I need food. Or you can say, Moses, what should we do? What does God want from us? We don't have food. Tell us what to do and, and we'll do it. Just tell us. Right? So unfortunately, uh, the Jewish people... Uh, choose the first way instead of the latter, which would have been better. But uh, they do a lot of complaining. So Moses tells them, okay, God is going to send you the manna, the bread from heaven. It's going to come every day, and you're going to have enough for your family. No leftovers. Every day, a new uh, manna will fall. Anything you leave over is going to immediately spoil the next morning. Um, and then he'll tell them, that they can't leave over. But it'll also tell them on Friday it's going to fall double, or they're going to discover it falls double on Friday. And, um, and there won't be any in the field. Don't go searching for it. And on both these things, this that you can't leave over, and that you can't go search for it in the field on the Sabbath because it won't be there because it fell double on Friday, um, both those two things, these uh, Moses uh, nemesis, if you like to say, Dustin Aviram, um, are going to, whatever Moses says, they're going to do the opposite. Moses says, don't leave over. They're leaving over. And it'll spoil. Worms coming out of their tent. Smells coming out of their tent. Moses says, don't go looking for it on Friday. Not only 
not only will they um, go look for it, they actually try to plant some of their own out in the field on Friday to uh, to show the world that, or at least show the Jewish people, see Moses make up stories, there is money out here, you shouldn't listen to him, which is really crazy, right? In other words, here you are starving. There's no food. This miraculous food falls from the sky. You go collect it. However many people you have in your house, that's how much you're coming home with. In other words, you're going to measure out measuring containers for each person in your house, whether it's wife, children, servants. There's going to be an exact amount per person. Comes Friday, there's going to be double for each person. It doesn't matter how much you collected. So, so obviously... So obviously, Moses got it right. I know this miracle is happening, and you see that it's happening exactly the way Moses says. So why are you trying to make Moses look bad? Like, what are you thinking? And I believe the answer to that important question is, when a person gets angry, his brain shuts down. That's We find this in, in numerous places throughout the Torah. Um, I don't think you need to, to see it from the Torah. You can just see it if you know anybody who's ever gotten angry. People, when they get angry, they don't think. They say things they don't mean to say. They do things they don't mean to do. It doesn't matter, right? They're going to pay for it. But the fact of the matter is when we get angry, we completely shut down. Our brains stop working. This Dustin Avir, this is not an anger, but it's, I think it's in the same ballpark. They had a hatred for Moses, and that hate and anger are probably pretty similar. And they just didn't think. It's just, it's just hard to, to even put your finger on it, how a person could, could go ahead and start up with somebody who you see God is doing miracles and taking care of him. On the flip side, it is helpful that... Uh, that when we question our leaders and we see their rights, so it, it helps add to the belief system. That's fine, but that doesn't help us in Avir. So before I go on with this, I want to tell you a joke. Fievel owns a delicatessen, and he has a reputation for being an angry person. Hard to know how he stayed in business, but um, he would shout at customers, he would berate them, he would yell at them. One day, young Israeli comes in, walks into the store, goes up to the counter and says, Hey, Fievel, I bet you five bucks I can bite my own eye. What? What are you talking about? Fievel looks and wants to throw him out. He says he puts five dollars on the counter. He says, I'll make you bet. Fievel puts on his five. The guy pops out a glass eye, puts it in his mouth, gives a little bite, sticks it back in. And Fievel is not pleased that he's playing with him. So he says, uh, okay, I'll make you another bet. This Israeli says, make you another bet. I bet you 10 bucks that uh, I can bite my other eye. So Fievel says, one glass eye he could have. Two glass eyes? It's not happening. So uh, he says, fine, put $10 down. And, uh, and Fievel, and the Israeli takes out his fake teeth and bites the other eye. Okay, now Fievel is furious. So Israel says, okay, look, 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 I'll give you a way to earn your money back. I'll bet you 100 bucks that I can take uh, one of these bottles over here with seltzer, um, shake it up and down, and aim it, and I can fill the whole, I can get it to land in a little shops glass. A little glass, I'm going to shake it up, I'm going to get it straight into that glass. 
If not, you get 100 bucks. Now, Fireball says, look, glass eye maybe, fake teeth maybe. He is not shaking up a bottle and uh, having it explode and land in a little schnapps glass. Not happening. Puts on the dollars down on the table. And this Israeli shakes and shakes and shakes. He opens it up and it's, it, it just shoots out the seltzer everywhere, all over the counter, all over Fievel, all, all over. Not a drop goes in the schnapps glass and Fievel is laughing, laughing, laughing. And he takes the $100. So Fievel says, like, okay, I, I, I don't know what your, your gig is over here. You didn't really think that you'd be able to get your, your soda, your seltzer, into that glass, did you? He says, not at all. He says, I didn't think I'd get anything in there. So this is what kind of crazy bet, as Fievel's laughing, did you make to give me 100 bucks? He says, let me explain to you something. You see those two customers in the corner? They told me you, you were just an, a grumpy, angry person. I bet them 400 bucks that I could spray soda all over the place and you'd be happy and you'd thank me for it. And you see, I was right. So um, that little bit of uh, thought while you're chuckling away, please. Um, right? In other words, there are people that are angry, the brains aren't working, and uh, sometimes we can go ahead and uh, use their, their disposition, if you'd like to say, and... Uh, Make some money on the side. But what I really wanted to talk about, and this really, really follows my last show with, uh, with Danny. Again, I tell you that story from a, an Ethiopian Jew who made his way to Israel and some of the things he went through. And I want you to check out his book, From Africa to Zion. Um, you learn a lot. It's a good, a, a good, is what to learn that there's racism around the world and uh, we need to talk about it. But I want to talk about a very famous um, African-American by the name of Louis Armstrong. If you don't know who Louis Armstrong was, um, you should go look it up. You might not be old enough, but you should look it up anyways. Um, Louis Armstrong was known as a Sachmo, by the way. And he was, of course, famous as a, as a jazz musician and his uh, trumpet. And for, he had a career of five decades. He was famous. He was in some very famous uh, movies, and uh, one of the things he happened to have been famous for, those who knew him, he's not alive anymore, of course, um, he was Baptist, but he proudly wore a Star of David necklace, which obviously is a Jewish symbol. So the question was, for those who don't know too much about him, what is this black trumpet player, jazz superstar, um, uh, not only musician, but of course in, in, in numerous, numerous films, What's he doing wearing a Star of David? So you need to know his story. So he was born in uh, actually 1901 in New Orleans, um, an environment right that was uh, not a good place to be if you were, first of all, not if you were black and not if you were Jewish. Not, it's not a good place way before, of course, the Civil Rights Movement. And uh, the day he was born, his father left. He was raised by his grandmother. His mother was all 16 years old at the time. And it was in a society where there was a lot of segregation. It was really, really a rough life. Nothing to talk about. And um, by the time he was, you know, seven or eight years old, he wasn't going to school. He needed to help his family. He needed to make a living. So um, he starts, you know, looking around where he can find a job. 
and as he's uh, scouting out the neighborhood, um, he he runs into um, actually went to a different low class white neighborhood, and he discovered a cluster of Jewish families there, who had arrived from Lithuania. Now, Lithuania is uh, swallowed up by Russia. And uh, most of, of those Jewish families happened to be related, happens to be. And it was a small, close-knit community. And uh, they themselves were going through a lot of anti-Semitism, but they hung together and they made a go of it. So, um, so Louis Armstrong himself, by the way, would say that, uh, that those Jews over their history suffered more than the blacks did. It was interesting. This is he himself when he writes in some of his, me- in some of his memoirs what, uh, what was going on. But he says even as a seven-year-old, he also saw the suffering that these Jewish families were going through. In any case, um, the Jews themselves considered themselves lucky to not have to have pogroms where people would break down their, uh, their gates and just murder and pillage for excuses just because that at least you know he felt uh, he wasn't going through and the, and those those Jews from Russia felt at least that much they were safe again they had a lot of issues earning a living going to school moving up the social ladder but at least they weren't worried at night that someone was breaking down the door to kill them anyways uh, the Karnovskys was one of those Jewish families and they worked pretty hard like many like many immigrants in those days and each morning at 5 a.m. One of their older sons, whether it was uh, Alex or, or Morris, they were junk collectors. They go around, collect junk, uh, bottles, rags, bones, whatever they could find, buy it for a few pennies, try to sell for a little bit more, whatever they could to make a few dollars. Anyways, so Lewis actually approached them and said, maybe I can help you guys out. So they said, no problem. Right? It's, there, may, there may still be racism. There is still racism today. Again, that's what we were focusing on our last show. Um, but even if there is racism in the world, but this Jewish family did not have it. Boy needs a job. We don't care what color your skin is. You want a job? You can help us. We can help you. Let's go for it. So by age seven, Lewis would, um, each weekday morning, he would be on their wagon, whether Alex was driving or Morris was driving, and they went around, again, collecting junk so they could buy it in the morning, sell it in the afternoon, and uh, Lewis actually worked for them in the evening as well. And um, then they would get coal, and they would get the coal and sell the coal. And again, it was not making a lot of money, you know what I mean? But something to survive. So interesting, uh, Morris got um, Lewis Armstrong started um, with a beautiful present. He bought him a tin horn. Now, I guess that's a predecessor to a trumpet. And he told, he told Lewis, you blow this so the kids in the neighborhood will know we're around. They'll come out with their, with their junk, with their bottles, and we'll give them a few pennies, and, and it'll make it a little bit easier for us. And he actually started learning to play it, and he, he would put his fingers in front of the whistle or the, or the front of it, and he started playing tunes on it, and uh, that was his first feeling for, um, for entertainment and what it was like to be out there entertaining people. And he tooted away, and... Um, and um, he loved it. And in any case, um, as time went on, um, Morris, that's again one of the brothers, they were passing by a store, and Lewis spotted, uh, a, I don't know if it was rusty, but a tarnished cornet, which again is a, something getting you ready to play a trumpet. And he saw it in a pawn shop, and he went inside, and he asked how much it is, $5. I mean, 
Where's it going to come out? $5. Samora said, I tell you what, I'll lend you $2. And we were talking about money, like, what's $2? What's $5? Uh, you know, 120 years ago. It was a lot of money. And these are families that, you know, try to make a few pennies to live. So he's selling you $2. And he made a deal with the uh, store, with the pawn, pawn shop owner, said 50 cents a, you know, a week or whatever it was the, to pay it off. And he learned to play. And eventually, of course, he's going to, you know, Louis Armstrong is going to learn to play the, uh, the trumpet. And uh, it was even more than that, by the way. They actually called him Cousin Louis. Right? They, they brought him into the family. And, uh, and Alex and Morris's mother, the Karnaskis, they actually fed um, Cousin Louis. And they made excuses, you know, by the time you get home, probably your mother will have cleaned up supper already. Why don't you stay with us, have something to eat till you get home? Because Ms. Karnaski knew that there was really no food in, uh, in Louis's house. So she, uh, so she took care. She took care of him. Didn't care, didn't care that this was a, a, an African American, a black child in in those times. She didn't care. Another human being. We take care of each other. And that's what they did. And and actually, one of the songs that uh, that Louis Armstrong is famous for is actually called uh, "Russian Lullaby." It's one of his songs. It was that song that the Kanuskis would play with, or would sing uh, to their children to put them to sleep. And uh, life went on, but at age 11, in case you don't know the story, age 11, Louis was playing with a gun that belonged to a stepfather. It had a blank in it, and he shot it, and the police came, and they arrested him. And they sent him to this, uh, it was actually called the Colored Waves Home. It was a detention facility. And obviously, the living conditions were horrible. And there were no mattresses, and meals were sparse. Discipline was tough, but they had a band. This place had a band. And he was allowed, Louis was allowed to join the band. He took lessons. And by 13, he became the band leader. And obviously, uh, from there, um, he became a star. People discovered who he was. And uh, we're not going to go through the whole story of his life. If you want the, his life, go look it up online. But it's interesting. He had a manager, a Jewish manager, Joey Glasser. And, uh, and they became close friends. It was actually this Joe who gave him the star of David. And, and Louis wore it his whole life. He was proud of it. He was really proud. He was proud of a relationship that he had developed with a Jewish family that took care of him when he was down and out. And he was going to remember them and appreciate them throughout his life. And he did. So um, we don't have to go through all the things he said. He was obviously full of praise and all the memoirs when he writes about the Jewish people. But the point is that, you know, a lot of us have it all wrong. We have it all wrong. We're just, we're just busy... We're just busy not looking at the person. We're busy looking at skin color. We're busy looking where a person is coming from. Um, we don't take the time to see who that person is and let that person become who he or she is. And uh, again, how things are being dealt with nowadays not the way I would do things. Um, I can't say there's a right or wrong way because the problem is, is a lot of things that have been lasting for so long and, and so many people have suffered. And it's, it's, it's tragic that, that, and that's really what Danny was saying, by the way, that, that most of the people he's run into, he did run into a lot of racism. Danny on the show before. He ran into a lot of racism and still runs into a lot of racism, and he knows it. And, uh, and he had his journey, and we all have our journey. And uh, 
look, we got to be on our journey. And those that, that make life difficult and hard for everybody, so they're going to pay for it one day. Unfortunately, some of them are paying with it because of what's happening in the streets, but okay. So I just wanted, this was sort of like a, an addendum to the last show. I, I, I saw this story and I, I wanted to bring it up because I think it's important, right? Sometimes we only hear the rotten stories, how people didn't t- treat people nicely and, and how how some police officers not, might be acting while there's so many that are so good. But the problem is we only hear the bad stories. So sometimes we got to re- remind people there's a lot of good people out there. Most people, I think, generally are good. But the problem is there's enough bad ones out there that uh, that's what we talk about. So, again, I'm not saying there isn't racism. I'm not saying people aren't suffering. Uh, I'm saying there's a lot of good people, and the good people should stand up and speak up. And, yeah, we should do something about those people that are still living, you know, 150 years ago and not understanding what it's like. But, okay, fine. Let's have a couple minutes left. So I did want to point out a few other fascinating things in this week's Torah portion. So the beginning of the Torah portion discusses the menorah, the the seven-branch candelabra, candelabrum. Um, it was gold. It was lit every day by the by the Kohen, by the priest. But it's a little bit in a funny place. That was last week's Torah portion we were talking about. The the Jewish people are going to start traveling and, and taking apart the tabernacle and building the tabernacle and who carries what. And we talked about the dedication of the tabernacle. And each tribe, the leader of each tribe, brought special sacrifices um, for the dedication. So Aaron, the high priest, he says, my tribe, the Levites, didn't get to bring any kind of dedication. Like, what gives? So God says, don't worry. Every day you're going to light the menorah, and that's going to be the dedication for your tribe. That's what some say. Others say a little differently. Um, the, the time will come um, when the Greeks take over the land of Israel and the Hashemunayim, the Asvenian family, will, which was a priest, a Kohen family, will drive out the Greeks and they will rededicate the temple because the Greeks took over. They made it into one of their uh, temples for their, uh, for their gods. So the, the Hashemunayim were going to rededicate. That's the whole Hanukkah story. You want to know the Hanukkah story? Go back to some of our Hanukkah um, shows. We're not going to go through it now. But the menorah being juxtaposed right after all the 12 princes brought their dedication sacrifices is to say the priests, the Kohanim, have their own um, dedication. And that was either was daily through the lighting of the menorah or was hinted to by the fact that the we have the Hanukkah story, which, of course, revolves around the menorah. That's how we celebrate it. We light candles each night. It's fine. So there are a few interesting thoughts. I don't know how many I'm going to get through, but what's the seven-branch business? Why seven branches? Now, of course, any number I pick should be a good question. Why this number over another number? So any number will be good. But it happens to be there's seven branches of knowledge. Um, and they say in the ancient world it was accepted. I don't think we, we look at it by what's considered a knowledge, different kinds of knowledge, different facets of knowledge. It happens to be there's seven. So the seven is to show that there's seven types of knowledge, and the menorah puts them all together, and uh, and that's what we are looking for. The menorah actually is symbolic of Torah study, which involves all branches of knowledge. So that's uh, one reason why it's seven. Um, 
Um, there's the number seven comes up in a few places, by the way. Right? We have seven chords, right? A harp has seven strings, which is fascinating because it says when the Messiah comes, there'll be eight. There'll be additional knowledge, different additional music. When uh, when the world to come, there'll be ten. It's even more, right? Uh, seven also, by the way, the seven days of the week, because uh, because uh, seven is like this world. Eight becomes the next world. So seven happens to be in a lot of places, comes up all over the place. Um, interesting enough, by the way, um, the menorah, when it was made, was made very different from all other types of the vessels. For example, when you're going to make the ark, you're going to make the table, you're going you're gonna to nail it together, you're going to take the pieces, you're going to put the gold on it, it's made of multiple pieces. Interesting enough, the menorah had to be made from one block of gold. And the reason was it's to show that the menorah, which is all those types of knowledge, it's, re- it's represented of the Jewish people, that were all one. So it's beaten out of one, but the music is playing. I tried to squeeze in as much as I could. So... I hope you enjoyed it short and sweet as always. Thank you to one of the sponsors and listeners here. I can't do it without you. Thank you to one of the production team. We have David and Kelsey in the back. I hope you have left and food for thought. Until next time, I am Rabbi Sweet Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah and our streamcast. Until next time, don't forget to think about it.